The Claude 3 model family by Anthropic is your one-stop shop for enterprise AI. Haiku is lightning fast and cost-effective. Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between skills and speed. And Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Learn more at anthropic.com slash Claude. I'm Suki Novogratz, co-author of Just Sit. I'm a philanthropist, a meditator, and a lover. You know when the opportunity is there. There's a light. There's something that sparks. Money's money. When you have the money with intention, that sets it in a whole different vibration. But that starts with you feeling that sensation. And it's intuitive, but you know. And it's trusting that. And there's always been the best investments, so to speak. This is Secrets of Wealthy Women from the Wall Street Journal. Helping women empower themselves financially. Now, Veronica Dagger. Billionaire philanthropist Suki Novogratz is an author, activist, and proud member of the Joyful Heart Foundation, which is committed to educating and empowering survivors of abuse. In addition, she's a tireless philanthropist. Suki is a supporter of arts and music education, international development, and research in neurological science. In recent years, Suki has been a proponent of meditation, having co-authored the book, just sit. She shares how she believes the daily practice of mindfulness is the first step to a successful life. I heard you say you grew up the daughter of two social workers. So wondering, did you ever imagine extreme wealth? No, I don't think I even knew what that meant. In fact, when I was in college at, at Princeton, since I was Puerto Rican and a female, all the big banks were asking, oh, you could be interviewed and, and get jobs. And I'm like, who wants to work at a bank? I mean, a bank teller? Like, I had no clue of finance, the whole world my husband came from in terms of you know where his wealth comes from. And I had no idea. How have you been able to carve out your own identity when you're married to a well-known man? It takes time. It's easy to get lost in it, especially since you know we both went to col- you know, same college. You know, and I joke, I'm like, wait, I had a higher GPA and, you know, and I become the professional packer as we're moving to different countries and, and, uh, and I'm carrying his bags. I'm like, wait, how did this happen? But the beauty is that the wealth allowed me the opportunity to find myself in ways that I don't know if I could have if I went straight into a job, what have you. I was able to sort of mother and parent my, my children and also heal and take care of myself. And so now as I, I'm 50 today, I really am a strong human and we are partners, but that comes with an ebb of flow of growing up together. And that's a challenge. What's the secret to having such a nice, long marriage? You know, the secret is that there's no secret. You just have to show up every day, (laughs) you know, and be committed to, to the journey. And the journey is not a straight line. It's challenging. The benefits of family are huge. What would you say is the best part of being a billionaire? Oh, you know, I guess it's not something I really identify with necessarily in that way. But what's great about it is that you can give, you know. So when your sister-in-law wants to start a fund for you know, global poverty, you're like, yeah, we're in. You know, when your other sister and brother-in-law are starting a sustainable food fund, you're like, yeah, we're in. So we can support our causes, our friends, our family, and bring people with us on this journey. What's the drawback? People judge you. There's an obligation to give. It's an opportunity to care and to love deeply and how to use that money because it's an energy just like anything else. And so you have to embrace it, but let it go and let the energy keep on moving. That's something I've learned. How do you feel like people judge you? Well, I mean, I think it's really easy to judge that people with money are 
disconnected. I mean, come on, you know, Fitzgerald, you know, the, you know, the rich are different from you and me. You know, I remember showing up to not being the rich people <laughs> at all at different Goldman Sachs party or what have you. And who are these people and how they live? And, and then I saw all the amazing work they did as well. And I learned. I learned a lot from many families how to give and have impact. How does your relationship with family and friends change when you reach the so-called billionaire status? Our friends don't, I don't think they really notice. I mean, they do in that like the parties might be a little nicer, the wine might be a little better. But, you know, it's still Mike and Suki. (laughs) It's hard to say. You've been really courageous about speaking publicly about being a, a rape victim. And I was wondering, would you share your story with us? Sure. You know, I was 17. It was the summer before starting at Princeton. And I was roofied and gang raped by um, three students. I was in this, I was at, at, at um, in a summer program. And there were people that I didn't really know, but I knew them. They didn't give me enough of the whatever the, the drug is, but I was going in and out of consciousness. So I was out, but not fully out. Which So you're sort of in this dreamlike place. And the whole time thinking like, is this really going on? Is this really happening? And you know, they tied me up and all these horrible things. And then one of them really noticed that I was sort of a little too conscious and that they needed to make me pass out and maybe give me heart failure if they gave me enough cocaine, if they put enough, maybe drink enough alcohol. I'm tied. So it's like they're forcing me. And so it's like throwing up. Um, and then they jumped up my body at the side of the river that was close to where that dorm was. I remember the, the lying there with the cold ground saying, just keep your eyes open, keep your eyes open, just keep your eyes open. And one of the three guys must have felt some sort of like, not good about this. And he called one of the RAs, who was a friend of my boyfriend's at the time. He went and, and found me and brought me to the hospital that was on campus. And I flatlined. I do have this memory of like looking down on my body and someone saying, well, it's not your time yet. And, you know, getting back in my body. And then the next member I have is in Steve's dorm room. I was like wiped down clean, although I had the EEG things. And like, you know, I just didn't, I didn't know any of this, like that this happened or that this goes on. Like I just never experienced that kind of trauma, evil. And, um, and I went to the police, but it was campus police. I didn't realize they were not like real police. And then I had to go to the Judiciary Committee, which were five women, to tell my story. At this point, like, I was sort of badass. You know, I'm, I'm going to Princeton. I'm a smart woman, you know, like, and I'm going in to tell these women. I'm like, I'm like, walk in. I'm like, oh, I'm so glad they're women. Oh, they're, they're, they're like, totally get my story. Like, this is like, this, this is crazy. So I sit down and I'm sharing the story. And uh, they're like, I'm sorry, excuse me. No, you're Puerto Rican, correct? I'm like, yeah, I am. Anyway, and I go back to my story like, oh, excuse me. We hear you're a very sexy dancer. And I'm like thinking to myself, are you kidding me? Okay, like I'm Puerto Rican and I'm a sexy dancer. And so, oh, like I wanted this. And that's when I realized that all the women there were like judging me. And then I was thinking to myself, oh, okay, even if I said, yeah, I want to have sex with three guys. Who wants sex like this? I'm like lacerated. I mean, I'm, I'm like, I have bruises all over my body. I, I'm lacerated. I couldn't comprehend what was going on because everything in my life had always been a student. Everything goes as planned. And this was like not part of the plan. And then they walked in these two girls who were, you know, who I was rooming with. And then they were like, yeah, I don't know where Suki went that evening. We all went to whatever to see St. Elmo's Fire. And, and then we went to get pizza. But then after that, and I'm like, wait, people lie? Like, about stuff like this? Like, what planet am I on? And then the three guys walk in. Now, mind you, last time I saw them, I was, like, (laughs) tied up. I stood up because of my fear, and I just collapsed. 
And then my father sort of apparently picked me up and just like took me out. Now they're of course like, oh, she's like mentally unstable. And so this is 1985. So people didn't understand trauma, triggers, or maybe they did, but no, it wasn't really sort of that common knowledge. I mean, date rape didn't really come into the national dialogue until 1990. I, I was just, I, I was, I was just in such shock that people didn't believe me and that they thought it was a great idea to bring the three guys in so we could just share around the table. We then hired a real lawyer because I spoke to real policemen and they were like, well, some of these guys had a lot of money, powerful parents. You are Puerto Rican. Your parents are both social workers, not connected. Understand that if we're going to do this, you're going to be on every newspaper, what have you. And I wasn't up for it. It is one of my greatest regrets, but yet I, I didn't have the support. My parents certainly want, want me to. They're like, my dad was like, you know, let's clean you up. You got school in a month. You know, like you're on this path. He didn't realize or I was on a different path at that point, for better or worse. I mean, you know, it's just it's just a different path. It wasn't until years later, I was on the, I'm on the board of Joyful Heart, which is an organization that wants to transform cult, you know, culture's response to sexual assault, child abuse, and domestic violence. And I was sort of preparing to tell my story on stage at one of their annual galas. And so I was doing some research. The girl who became the cover of Time magazine was in 1990, which is five years later, sort of the first date rape or whatever. I was like really curious. I'm like, let me find that woman. I'm really curious because like that could have been me. I could have been that face, you know, and that was my real fear of that for whatever reason. So I'm going through and and with my co-author, Beth, my sister-in-law, we were sort of doing research and I found her, found found the cover. And then I saw this little blurb on her and she said, yeah, that's not even my photo. I didn't look like enough of a victim so Time Magazine actually chose a different photo. And then I was realized that my fear wasn't even founded. How did you get through this experience as a young person? Oh, I stuffed it in a little box and then didn't look at it for like a really long time. <laughs> like coping skills? Like, no. I mean, I did therapy for a little bit. But both my parents are social workers and therapists. But I was like, no. I need to function in school. And so I, I pretty much was a zombie for my first two years. And in fact, when people, like from my first two years in college, you know, like, hey, remember this? I'm like, no, I don't even know who you are. Like, I have no memory. And it really wasn't until I had sex for the first time after that event that, like, the flood of all the memories. And that's where, like, okay. And I actually took a year off from school. I totally fell apart because you can't. You can't function like that. It's, it's not possible. What advice do you have? for other women who are victims? I think there's so much out there for support. I mean, now there's not the same kind of shame or victim blaming, but therapy, telling your story with other people who've had your experience. Like, I felt really alone, you know, as if, like, I was the only person this had happened to. I mean, as we could see in the past few weeks, this is like a a constant stream of, of happenings. Maybe not as sort of extreme as mine, but that this is not uncommon. And that to seek other people have similar stories, therapy and meditation. This episode is brought to you by Vanta. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging. Vanta's trust management platform helps you quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, and more. Plus, save time by completing security questionnaires with Vanta AI. Learn how by watching Vanta's on-demand demo at vanta.com WSJ. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash W-S-J. The future of everything from the Wall Street Journal. All new episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Google Play Music, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, and NPR One. The Wall Street Journal. Listen ambitiously. You're listening to Secrets of Wealthy Women from the Wall Street Journal. 
you know, I read approximately 20% will be sexually assaulted during their college careers. Do you have a sense of how come this is happening so much still? You know, why does it happen? Because bro culture, rape culture, because you can. I mean, the changing of that narrative has to happen. And I think it is slowly happening. I mean, that's why I got involved with The Hunting Ground, which is a documentary on campus rape. And it created awareness um, in a way that people, you know, people knew about it, like all this other stuff, you know, just no one really, no one wants to be the rape school. And that's that's how this sort of kept on going. Like even where I was with these five women who were judiciary committee during the summer, they didn't have agency and God forbid it was going to be them to create like the rape school. And so that that's the challenge. And sort of changing the language, changing the culture, because this is like from the you know, beginning of time, not just campuses, but anywhere where there is an imbalance of power. You know, you're an executive producer of I Am Evidence, and I was shocked to learn how many rape kits aren't being tested, and they're just sitting in evidence. Any sense on what's happening there? It's very challenging because there's not a lot of transparency. If you get a box from Amazon, you can track it. You know where it is, when it's going to get there, but there's no sense of that when you get a rape kit. You go into either a hospital or to police facility, and you get like this probing for DNA and other evidence. And then this box, no one has sort of a transparent way of like what to do with it. There isn't code in, in all the different states. And so it's the prosecutor who will be like, oh, I think this is a really good case. And so I'll send this off for DNA testing. So if they don't feel like your case is compelling, it's challenging. So if you're a prostitute or what have you, like, well, or if they know the identity of the assailant, well, then why do we need that? We had the DNA. Well, the DNA is very useful because you can put it up on CODIS and then you can catch other people that way. But it is very challenging because there should be some, there's no legislation amongst all states in terms of how to properly, what to do with it once they've received it. How has meditation helped you cope with trauma? Meditation helps you, A, get in your body. It's my experience of watching myself above the gurney, so to speak. You need to reconnect. And reconnecting requires you to be in a body that is evidence that was traumatized. And so that could be really frightening. And it helps you go through the experience because the only way to get to the other side is to touch all those, the, the full catastrophe of it. Meditation is the kindest tool I know for touching pain. You have this book called Just Sit. I just read it. It's a great little book everyone should check out. What do you say to people who feel they're too busy or too antsy to meditate? You know, it's like, me too. <laughs> I've got four kids. I've got a crazy husband in his schedule. I've got stuff in my life. It's like, do you brush your teeth twice a day? And they say yes. And like, well, you wouldn't want to not brush your teeth because then you get like teeth rot. But it's sort of like meditation. And it doesn't need to be a lot of time. I mean, it can be. That's great. If you want to do 15, 20, even if it's just five minutes or even it's one minute before you brush your teeth, just to slow down, just to stop everything so you can be in your body and step into your day with awareness. Would you lead us in a say, a one-minute meditation? Sure. Well, you know, I think one of the nicest ways just to feel your body. It's a, a simple body scan. And even, it's, even not even simple as that of just like sitting in your chair and feeling the weight of your legs in your chair, your feet touching the ground, and then your breath, the deep belly breath, deep breath in, that fills your whole body up through your back. And then you exhale and you let it just sort of drip through and out the bottom of your feet. And then you breathe in again, charged with the energy of the earth coming through your feet. 
and you fill your heart with that breath. And you exhale again. And you feel the energy and love in the breath. I tell people that meditation is really easy because we all breathe. The other part of it is just paying attention to the breath. And so you're halfway there all the time. Very relaxing. Thank you for that. I know you're quite the philanthropist. What advice would you have for folks who are just trying to decide what to give to? There's so many worthy causes out there. How do you figure that out, what your passion is? You know, I think we're, we're all vibrations. We're all tuning forks. And that you know when the opportunity is there, when someone's, if it's an organization or if it's, you know, someone's you know, friend's cause or what have you, there's a light. There's something that sort of sparks an attunement. And that has to be there for there to be lift in that organization, for that lift for that money. Because the giving is not just money's money, but as I said, it's energy. So when you have the money with intention, that sets it in a whole different vibration. But that starts with you feeling that sensation like, oh, oh. And it's intuitive, but you know. And it's trusting that. And there's always been the best investments, so to speak. Time now for your secrets. My name is Suki Novogratz. I'm a mother of four. My money secret for my kids and for myself is support dreams, but not lifestyles. That money can lead to such a purposeful life when you align it with passion and imagination. Be sure to check back for future episodes featuring women leaders and their success stories. Subscribe and review us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite audio provider. I'm Veronica Dagger. Thanks for listening. What's your secret? Let us know. Write podcasts at DowJones.com or on Twitter. Use hashtag Secrets of Wealthy Women. The Claude 3 Model Family by Anthropic is your one-stop shop for enterprise AI. Haiku is lightning fast and cost-effective. Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between skills and speed. And Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Learn more at anthropic.com slash Claude.